Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where you will learn about the mythology of otherness, building resilience, forgiveness, and connection. My first guest is Dr. John Crowley. He is an associate professor in the Department of Communications at the University of Delaware. His research, teaching, and service focus on understanding how to help individuals, especially those within marginalized or historically underrepresented communities, build resilience to cope with the stress associated with difficult and discriminatory life experiences. John's research has focused on disclosure, forgiveness, and emotional support. His current research is funded by both the Villanova University's Waterhouse Family Institute for the Study of Communication and Society, that's the WFI, and the National Institute on Aging from the National Institute of Health. And John Patrick Crowley is in the house, and I'm so happy you are. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm so excited to be here. I am so excited to have you here because we've probably like talked through the equivalency of two interviews before we got (laughs) ourselves started. So we are ready to roll to talk about building resilience, building community, and building ourselves and each other back Mm. up as we emerge from the difficult times that we're in. Mm. Yeah. I think when you think about just the magnitude of stress that we've all been under, the psychological stress that we've been experiencing, the relational stress that we've likely experienced at our homes while we were sheltering in place, the stress that we're experiencing now as we're starting to navigate ourselves back into the workplace and re-engaging on a consistent basis with others, communicating, maybe we forgot ways in which to do this in, <laughs> yes. in ways that were that to be are like, civil and in right, person. Like effective or, you know, I think that we're all just encountering a lot of stress. So some of my work has sought to understand how we can cope with stress when we're, when we're managing difficult life experiences. And I think that we can all relate to this in one way or another, you know, that it is the coming out of this COVID mindset, emerging back into the world and emerging into a world that has another kind of existential threat to it. I mean, I find that is what is a little mind-blowing. It's like, are you kidding me? (laughs) We just get out of this and now we're going to that? I know, right? So it's just constantly facing threat. And when the body and when the mind is constantly under stress, right? That's, ironically, that's when the body begins to give way to illness and disease. Yep. So we're vulnerable by extension of the, of the stress that we've been experiencing to, to the illness that's associated with, with COVID-19. So when the body is constantly taxed 
physiological pathways that regulate the body stress response, they start to give way. And this is what is known as allostatic load. And that's when we start to become immunocompromised and we can get ill. So questions I think that we have to ask ourselves right now is what are some things that we can do on a daily basis, even to try and build resilience so that we can better cope with, with these sorts of experiences that we're all going through. Well, tell us, doctor. I mean, I'm a big <laughs> proponent of, you know, dancing. <laughs> dancing. I love it. Movement. Movement. Yeah. That takes me down one path that is really central to my research and also to my own personal life, which is, which is mindfulness meditation. So when we think about movement, when we think about any, any sort of movement, whether it's dancing or whether it's walking, whether it's basketball, whether it's golf, whether it's washing the dishes, you know, there's a kind of attention that we can bring to that moment that is stress reducing. And that's, that's a kind of mindful attention, which I'm sure you've talked about fairly extensively on this podcast. Oh my gosh. Right. A zillion times, but, (laughs) but we need the constant reminder because we have, uh, memories of fleas. (laughs) We do have memories of fleas. Um, I think the coolest thing about mindfulness meditation to me, and I think the hardest thing when we think about it in terms of trying to investigate it is getting at this aspect of it that is decentering. Have you ever talked about that on the pod before? No, let's talk about decentering. So decentering is a, is, so if you think about mindfulness, some people conceptualize mindfulness as doing two things to help us, right? One is that it slows down the brain's automaticity or it slows down our connection with automaticity. So automaticity are the, the hardwired ways in which our brains react to the environment. And so mindfulness can kind of allow us to see these hardwired ways. It slows it down so that it doesn't happen in a non-conscious way, but instead it happens in a conscious way. So maybe instead of getting really upset at the dishes not being done when I come home, right? I notice that the mind is becoming angry and that there are these angry feelings occurring in my body. And I then become less reactive to those thoughts. Those thoughts don't overwhelm me in the same way that they normally would, because I've been trying to train through mindfulness, my ability to slow down the automaticity. I love that way of thinking about it. I think it's really cool and accessible. Yeah, but very much so. And I'm yeah. thinking, I'm thinking about those dishes because I am one of those people <laughs> 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 that would be irritated. <laughs> yeah. And why? Because I can control the dishes. I can't control COVID. Yeah. Right. Right. Isn't that the root of it all? Like not being able to control? Yeah, I think it's massive amounts of uncertainty. I think COVID has has presented to us so much uncertainty, especially at the beginning stages. Think about what we had to deal with, with not even knowing about how far to stand away from people. When I remember going on a run around this area where I live and I had a mask on while I was running. Ooh. And I was doing my best to stay like 12 feet away from people because I didn't know how contagious this was. Because we didn't know as a humanity how contagious this was, right? So the brain's uncertainty, uncertainty is connected to stress. Uncertainty is connected to arousal in the body, right? And so this idea of, of automaticity is trying to is trying to utilize mindfulness, especially now 
to see these hardwired reactions to our environment that are still ongoing for us as we're still negotiating, you know, upticks in, in COVID counts and, and et cetera. And, you know, this leads me to ask you a question about the uncertainty about our safety in the world, not just, you know, COVID and not just with world affairs, but in terms of biases that we may have against others or that the world is a dangerous place or that uh, homeless guy is a dangerous person or they're out to get me. You know, they air quoted they like, I don't know who the they really are, by the way. I'm just, Mm. you know, the collective they that also takes us out of that mindful place. We're so worried about controlling what's out there that we lose control about what's in here. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I think about a lot of work that is socio-evolutionary, what this work does is it tries to explain why, why the brain has created ways of categorizing people and things really quickly, right? And so it's allowed us to survive because we were able to, our ancestors, for, for instance, were able to see a lion and quickly decipher that this lion was something to ward off and be afraid of and run away from. Um, so in that way, it was it was adaptive for our survival, but obviously it has these really maladaptive outcomes in yeah. terms of prejudice, and stereotyping, discrimination, marginalization, unconscious bias, right? So the brain needs to be assessed. It can't just go on working without without us critically assessing what's happening. But the problem is, I would say, that without mindfulness, we can't slow it down enough so that we can see it. And some of the ways in which it can be really insidious in terms of discriminating and marginalizing entire groups of people or assigning attributes to entire groups of people. So this idea of slowing down the automaticity is like, to me, one of the most important things that we as human beings need to be doing is trying to get a sense for the way the mind functions so that we don't fall prey to it so that we're not disempowered by it. We become empowered through being able to observe the mind. Yes. Yes. And the executive functioning becomes more crisp. The executive functioning becomes more crisp. We're better able to make decisions. We're better able to regulate our emotions. But what's even cooler, perhaps, is the second aspect of mindfulness, which is this idea of decentering. So this idea of decentering is that when you slow down the automaticity, you then you then can watch thoughts and feelings as an objective observer. So these thoughts no longer become John's, right? These emotions are no longer John's. They're not mine. They're not my own. But instead, they're just thoughts and feelings that are occurring within me that are likely a function of centuries of human evolution, right? Or, or they're, they're, they can be part of the collective consciousness, but they allow me the capacity to, to decenter, to depersonalize the kinds of things that are happening in my body and my mind, which I think develops a tremendous amount of empathy because then we see that other people are going through a similar thing. Other people are experiencing thoughts and feelings that are troubling or thoughts and feelings that make them feel uncomfortable. And, and that's not necessarily them though. That's not, That's not that person that we're talking to. That's just the function of the mind. That's the way the mind works. 
I get it. I think I get. It. Anyway, get it? well, I get. I think what. Kind of well, yeah, but what I what I think I'm hearing is yeah. that that when we're able to sort of take ourselves out of the equation, bear witness to what we're seeing, thinking, feeling, smelling, whatever it is, that we can then sort of naturally de-escalate because we're no longer in it. The ego is no longer invested in the experience. We're just watching it. 120%. So imagine yourself at work, right? And somebody comes up to you and and they're rude. So does this slowing down of the automaticity and decentering, does it allow you to look at this person and say, you know, this isn't whoever the person's name is. This isn't them. This right. is their mind. This is the, the human mind. The monkey right? mind. <laughs> it's the monkey mind. <laughs> exactly. And it creates this tremendous compassion for, mm-hmm. for human beings, which I think we can all use right now, especially in the aftermath of COVID. Yes. When we're all scared of each other, right? When we're experiencing fear around, you know, encountering strangers because we don't know if they have this disease and... Yeah, or what is, their political beliefs are. Or what their political you know? beliefs are when, <laughs> when we become so divided politically. Yes. We feel so estranged from the other, from, from other people. Dr. Crowley, yeah. you need to go on the political camp- campaign trail, I think. <laughs> we need to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk more about this because I think this is the, this is the, like the nail on the head of what we need. Okay, cool. To learn more about Dr. John Patrick Crowley, please visit johnpatrickcrowleyphd.com. You can find him on Twitter at J.P. Crowles, and that's C-R-O-W-L-S. Here comes the pause. I'll be right back. And that is actually a promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit harvestinghappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back. We're continuing the conversation about the mythology of otherness, building resilience, forgiveness, and connection. Let's get back to the conversation with Dr. John Crowley. John, let's go back to decentering because I do think that we need to present this in another way, say it in another way to help people understand that mindfulness is not simply chanting, contemplating your navel or wearing saffron robes, although all of the above might happen. You know, (laughs) (laughs) what we're really talking about is proactively working with ourselves to have more dominion over our reactivity. And I think that that's the big deal with it, with mindfulness is that people attach a lot of associations with it, right? That it has to do with spirituality or that it has to do with religion. And I really like to anchor it when I teach this in class in in mindfulness science, right? So this has a lot of scientific backing on it. And if you try to boil it down, I think it's really doing a number of things. It's, It's allowing us to just observe the contents of our mind, observe the contents of our feelings, And that allows us greater power in not having those thoughts and feelings overwhelm us, right? So if I'm, the example I used before, if someone's rude to me at work and I have angry feelings, if I'm completely identified with the mind, if I'm completely identified with those feelings, 
then I'll be overwhelmed by those feelings. But if I can objectively observe them and say, wow, there's some anger happening or, or I can feel it in my body, but I'm not letting it overcome me, yeah. then I have greater agency. I have greater agency in responding. And I think it also has this flip effect of us being able to observe humanity and others in a more empathic and compassionate way, which I really feel like we need right now. more. Yeah. And that's the generosity of spirit part of it. Like that you, you can see in yourself when you're, when you're in a moment where you're being reactive and you're like, Oh, there's my anger. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I sense that I'm becoming activated, mm-hmm. but I am not the activation, right? I am not that anger. It's just a response. And then I can let it go. Right. Hopefully. Exactly. And then hopefully. hopefully, and then if I can extend that as a courtesy to the other person, I think that's pretty amazing. And that's a challenge. That is totally a challenge. I mean, being able to really, really, first of all, kind of accept what's going on within you is a challenge because there has to be a degree of openness to it, right? And openness to all of the beauty and all of the ugliness that exists within us. And there's all kinds of stuff that exists within us. And that's why I think the decentering aspect of this conceptualization of mindfulness is so important because if you can decenter from it, if you can depersonalize it, then you can be more open to it. And it and it's going to seem less threatening to you that you have anger or that you have, you know, this sadness or this grief associated with whatever is occurring in your life. And maybe you can just observe it. And maybe then through observing it and letting it express itself within you, whatever feeling you're having, maybe then it can actually start to, to be released, right? Yes. Um, And that's a really important point too, is that, and there's a lot of theorizing around this idea that when you experience an emotion, if you don't express it, if you don't really fully experience it, does it just go away or does it continue to live inside you? No, no, no. It gets stored in the body. (laughs) Stored in the body and it can become toxic. Yeah. Managed appropriately. So And make you sick. It can make you sick. (laughs) Let's just be really real about this. Make you sick. Absolutely. It can make you sick. And why is that the case? Well, I mean, there's a number of possible reasons, but I mean, I'd go back to what I said earlier, just in terms of this idea of allostatic load. When the body's pathways for regulating the stress response are taxed continually from bottled up or suppressed or repressed emotion, then that's going to make somebody immunocompromised. Well, let me ask a question about a prolonged elevation of cortisol and the effect on the immune system. Yeah. So cortisol runs on a diurnal basis, right? So in the morning you have these higher levels and it slowly declines throughout the course of a day. Um, And when you experience something in the environment that's stressful, cortisol has, has an increase. Uh, And then it's supposed to, to go back down to whatever baseline you were at prior to that exposure. If your stress levels, if your cortisol levels continue are, are continually high, then you can have this higher reaction to stress. But there's also another issue. If your cortisol levels are continually high, it can cause what is known as a blunted response, meaning that you don't have a normal stress response to whatever it is that you're experiencing in your environment. So, I mean, it's really important to find ways to regulate your stress response and and making it a daily priority, I think, is even more important. So how can we engage in daily practices that allow us to 
pay attention to how we're feeling, pay attention to what's going on in our bodies, pay attention to our stress and better regulate what's going on in our body and the stress that we're experiencing in our lives. Right. And I think mindfulness is, is clearly one way of going about doing this, but that's not the only way that I've researched. Tell us more. I could tell you about another way. I've always been really interested in journaling too. That's always been something that I was just kind of naturally inclined to do when I was young. And so when I started doing research, I wanted to investigate the benefits of journaling, of, it, of what is known as expressive writing, which is developed by a researcher at the University of Texas, Austin. His name is James Pennebaker. And what he did and others who have investigated this is they tested how asking people simply to sit down and express their deepest thoughts and feelings about something, usually something that's traumatic, can help them in ver in various ways in terms of their health outcomes. Wow. Uh, yeah. Have you talked at all about expressive writing on your show? Well, we've talked about definitely journaling over the years, years and years and years, but expressive writing in correlation to health? No. Okay. So this is, this is I would say, like a primary vein of my research. And what I wanted to do with with my work is understand what are the ingredients of writing that actually help people to feel better, to help people regulate their physiological stress response, to help people mentally recover from difficult life experiences. And I've looked at this for LGBTQ plus individuals who have experienced hate speech. I've looked at this for people in dating relationships who experienced severe relational transgressions. And I'm finding some patterns. And these patterns are based on a really huge literature that's been contributed to by a number of really great scholars. And, I, and some of the patterns are this, right? When you sit down and write, it's really important to vent. It's really important to let your emotions out when you're writing. So if you're writing to somebody, you know, and this is in accordance with what is known as traumatic disclosure writing, it's just kind of letting out your, your deepest thoughts and feelings about whatever it is that you're negotiating at that time. And that may actually help you to recover physiologically from huh. the stress associated with this experience. Yeah. Is it the ex sort of expunging it from consciousness that contributes to it, to the Correct. catharsis? Great question, right? So, I mean, there's a number of different theoretical vehicles for why this may happen. The one that I tend to rely on is disinhibition, which is based on the work of Freud, which says that uh -huh. when you inhibit emotions and you don't let them out, what happens, right? Your body, they, they become toxic within you. So it follows that through writing, if you can simply sit down and disinhibit, let those emotions out, then you may be able to help your body to regulate. Let your freak fly. <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. That and then what story. do you do? Burn it or save it? <laughs> so that's a good question. But, that, but you can't. So the research is also, it, it, it can't just be about venting. So there's another ingredient too. Uh-oh. Um, I'm scared. This is, this is, <laughs> is self-regulation. So what this theory is, is it suggests that when you experience something that's difficult in your life that you assign negative emotions to, then that emotion that you have around that experience can affect you, right? So it can really help to sit down and repackage something in a way that's positive. Try to find the silver linings in something that was really difficult to experience. So the kinds of work that I've been doing has been trying to get people in, in like a first stage of writing to just disinhibit and let it all out. 
And then in the second stage, when they, once they feel like they've gotten some of their emotion out, to then try and package and actively structure a story around whatever it is they're negotiating that tries to find the silver linings and the positive benefits that may have occurred from their experience. So, you know, if you're going through a divorce, right? How has this made you a stronger person? How are you more resilient now? What are the lessons that you've learned? Trying to identify what it is that you've learned and packaging that in a clear and coherent narrative can allow you possibly to leave those memories behind and move on with your lives in a healthier way. Oh, I love this. I mean, it's, it's in a sense, post-traumatic growth. Yeah. That, 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 that it's the retelling, the restructuring of the narrative yeah. uh, allows you to see how the journey, you know, the suffering has served transcendence and transformation. Totally. And allows you to spring closure to it. Yeah. Because I think sometimes when they're not, when, when it's negative, what do we do? We ruminate about it, yeah. right? We have these recurrent negative thoughts around whatever we're experiencing and they're not going away. And it's keeping us trapped in these places of unforgiveness, unforgiveness. And we know that unforgiveness is actually, according to the research, really taxing on the body. So yeah. it benefits you, not, it doesn't have to be the person who has offended you, but it benefits you, the person who is unforgiving to forgive just by extension of the benefits it can have for your stress. Well, the forgiveness doesn't let the other person off the hook. It lets ourselves off the hook. Totally. That's a great way to put it. You know, it, 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 we don't do it for the other. It, it's actually a, a, selfish, a selfish action. Yeah. In a positive way. Absolutely. I think so. Yeah. And I think it's really hard sometimes to, to forgive, to want to, to want to forgive somebody. And I think that's justifiable because some people don't know, some actions maybe don't always deserve forgiveness. Right. Right. But if we know that we're getting hurt by it, like you said, it's a selfish thing. Do it for yourself. Try to find forgiveness. And, you know, the, um, the meaning making out of this, you know, makes me think of Viktor Frankl's work after he was released from the concentration camps, right? That, that his life was really devoted to helping others find that sense of meaning. And when we do mm -hmm. experience trauma, and we have all experienced trauma in the last mm -hmm. couple of years, <laughs> mm -hmm. I guess the offering becomes, you know, well, what'd you do with it? Yeah. Yeah. What did you do with, with the trauma that you experienced? Yeah. Like, what did you do with it? How did you, how yeah. did you make it work for you? You know, yeah. that sort of yeah, the, I, the flip yeah. side of it. I love that idea because I think there's something, there's something so empowering about looking at a difficult life experience and saying, but I have the power to narrate it. Right. Yeah. I have the power to narrate how this is going to look in my life. It's not happening to me. But instead, I'm, I'm narrating it for the world, for myself. And yeah. that's a tremendously empowering thing that I think expressive writing can allow, can foster, right? Someone's agency in terms of narrating and sense-making their lives in ways that are better for them. Yeah. I, I said I was scared before because I thought, oh, he's going to say we need to read it aloud to somebody. And I'm like, oh, wow. Well, <laughs> I did have a professor who had us do that in our class. That's intense. Us, yeah, it was intense. He had us write a letter to somebody who 
he uh, who who created in us an emotional logjam, and he had and he brought us through this lab experience where we wrote a letter to them, and then he, we gave it to somebody in the class who read it back to us. Oof. Uh, it was remarkable. Oof. Yeah, it was remarkably hard. <laughs> yeah. And and amazing. Years ago, some of the earlier positive psychology interventions were, you know, to write a letter to somebody who, for, for whom you were grateful, a gratitude letter. Yeah. But it, you didn't, it didn't stop there. <laughs> you had to read it to that person. Oh, yeah. And I thought that was, that was monumental. So it's huge. Yeah. I'm not sure why you would have to do that unless, unless you, I mean, I'm just playing devil's advocate. Like, I think it's a good idea, but sometimes like you and I were talking about, sometimes this is really just for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> it's really for yourself to kind of negotiate these things. And unless it's like a critical relationship that you really want to repair, or that's in repair in some way. And, and you need to do this in order to get over the hurdle. Yeah, I, I can see it. It's all contextual though, right? It's all based on the relational circumstances. But coping with, you know, with judgments, coping with anger, frustration, lack of um, self-regulation, you know, trying to, you know, find your place back to neutral, I can see completely how this works, the expressive writing, because it's like, it's quick, you get it out. And then you gotta, you gotta repackage it. and, And it helps one move on. 20 minutes a day for three consecutive days. Ooh, you know, the prompts you can find online. And I would definitely encourage anybody listening to go and, and, and actually find the research and, and find those prompts as they've been validated in, you know, a number of different studies, meta-analyses have been conducted on these, but yeah, 20 minutes a day for three consecutive days, it could really have some profound effects, I think. Are these on your website? Are the prompts on your website? They're not. Oh, well, that wouldn't be a bad idea. That wouldn't be a bad idea. (laughs) That wouldn't be, yeah. Yeah. That wouldn't be a bad idea. So I will do that. That would be uh, actually very nice to be able yeah. to to learn the prompts from you. I appreciate you spending time with me to learn more about the work of Dr. John Patrick Crowley. Please visit johnpatrickcrowleyphd.com on Twitter at JP Crowles, and that's C R O W L S. We'll be right back, and that is a promise. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. This episode was recorded while on the road, and you know what that means. Imperfect sound, imperfect technology, but still that perfect, health-consciously prepared brain food. And we're back, continuing the exploration of the mythology of otherness, building resilience, forgiveness, and connection. My next guest is Wendy Sanford. After growing up in privilege in Princeton, New Jersey, living through the turbulent 70s when she became a feminist, lesbian, and a Quaker, Wendy Sanford attended seminary at Harvard Divinity School. It was then that she began to read works of women of color as a way to remedy her exposure to mostly white male authors. Wendy, thanks for joining me this morning. Thank you, Lisa. I'm so glad to be here. I am thrilled to have you here. This is this makes um, a great discussion in my view. Talk a little bit about your story and growing up in the world of white privilege. 
Well, of course, I didn't realize it at the time. I just thought this was how one grew up and how, what one was supposed, supposed to learn. Um, in that particular world in the 1950s, uh, with my father who commuted into New York City as a lawyer and my mother who did volunteer work at the hospital, I went to all private schools. I was in, uh, you know, I think today people still manage to live in an all white bubble. And I certainly did. And from all the books I read, from the teachers I had, from even the jokes my parents told at cocktail hour, I came to understand that white people were superior and that black people were mainly less Oh, what would I less civilized, less advanced? They were there to serve us, really. And my parents didn't had a live in young black girl really came uh, in the summertime to help them. And I just lived in a white bubble. All my friends were the clubs that my parents belonged to were white. And there were all and at that time, if I looked, you know, when I studied politics as a young teenager. There were all those white people in the in the Congress and the Supreme Court, pretty much. And so I just I learned I didn't think of myself as white. I thought of myself as a person. And then all the other people were like black people or Negroes, as we called them at the time. And Latino people, they were all the other and they had some mark of skin color or inferiority or something that put them as other. And I was the norm. And it just took decades of me and lots of other people, white people getting it, that we aren't the norm. In fact, white people, white skin is, it has a valence. It matters. It brings us privileges. It isn't like white people are just the regular people. And then there are people of color. So, but I learned I learned so deeply, and particularly as an upper middle class uh, white girl whose mother was in the a kind of a blue blood New Yorker, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, I learned all kinds of things about how I was to dress, how I was to behave, what I was to think of myself and think of others. And it was just, I shortened it to say, it was just a really white bubble that I grew up in without even aware, being aware that I was swimming in privilege and swimming in whiteness because it's just what was. It's what I was trying to learn how to be because that's what kids do. What I find so interesting about your story, growing up in the white world, in a world that we know is really not white. I mean, if you look across the globe at populations, white is the minority. It's, it's yes. the reverse, you know? Right. You know, I'm thinking of a, a specific example of how I learned about this whiteness. My mother would take shortcuts to go to a certain part of town. She would take shortcuts through the black part of town, uh, which was in Princeton. It was Witherspoon Street. If you if you any of your listeners know Princeton at that time in the 50s, 40s and 50s, it was um, Witherspoon Street was where a lot of immigrants and a lot of uh, Black people lived, and it was poorer. And at that time, I kind of learned that they were poor because they didn't work as hard or they weren't as smart. Now I understand that after World War II, 
white GIs got access to housing, to affordable mortgages, and black GIs who had fought just as hard did it. And so that's where the wealth gap comes from. But at the time, I just thought, oh, Witherspoon Street. And I was a little scared of driving down it. I would close my window because there were boys and girls in the street playing and people on the, their doorsteps chatting. And it just was a very different culture from mine. And I was a little scared. And then as I started trying to develop taste, you know, taste in clothes, if a dress was what my mother thought was bad taste, she would say it was too Witherspoon Street. Oh, my. So you <laughs> see how it all combined to reinforce that bubble. And a, a small, narrow one, you know, mm -hmm. a very, very uh, a, a, t a tight, contracted place. And then in the 70s, you became a feminist. So that already put you outside of this white privilege bubble, like step number one, right? Well, outside certain aspects of it, not the white privilege bubble, because uh, feminism as I knew it, early second wave feminism, was quite dominated by, by white women, even though there were um, really important African-American women and Latinas who contributed like to the forming of now the National Organization for Women. Um, yes. But uh, my group, my the Boston Women's Health Book Collective, my women's health group, we were for many years all white. And we would get we would write things like we women think this and we women experience that as though we who were all white could speak for all women. Um, there was a brief period for our group. I mean, we started getting educated sooner than some other um, aspects of the early second wave uh, women's movement uh, because there were there was a wonder a group called the Black Women's National Black Women's Health Project, and some friends of ours in that group said you know, very quickly said you are all white women. You can't say we and think you're speaking for everyone. You can't focus just on issues that affect white women's health. You have to think about all women's health. So, for instance, we were focusing very much on pregnancy and childbirth, but we weren't talking as much about the right to have financial support for, you know, poor women, poor mothers were getting poor health care. They were getting, you know, much less financial support. The maternal mortality rate at that time for black mothers was much higher. And the sad thing is it's still much higher. So we thought we were changing the world and we were trying to, but there's there are entrenched conditions and attitudes and restrictions that continue to uh, make the black mortality, more infant mortality and maternal mortality rates much higher. Anyway, I want to I want to ask you about the Boston Women's Health Collective, because I remember this back in the day when I was a young undergraduate student in Boston. And I remember the book, Our Body, Ourselves, that came out, which was a Bible, really, for young women of that time. Yes, and I'm I so would, happy to hear that. <laughs> at least for me, I was one of those women. I was like, wow, I could really learn about my body. Yes, and, yes. And all parts and what those parts did and didn't do. That's so true. And also that you were a sexual being. I mean, part of the, my growing up was, although I didn't grow up Roman Catholic, where I think this was even stronger, but there was just such a sense that 
women had, we had to hold back our sexuality and restrict our sexuality and say, no, it was always, we are the ones who had to say no, if men wanted to, or boys in that case, when we were growing up, wanted to do something, some kind of experimenting. And it was, it was great. I was one of the writers of the sexuality chapter all those years. And it was so great to just give voice and listen to women talking about being sexual. Pleasure. Uh, yeah, pleasure. pleasure, pleasure, and um, orgasm. I hadn't never said, heard the word said out loud before. Um, <laughs> and it was very liberating time around sexuality. And at the very same time, which helped with the liberation in a way, we were starting to talk much more openly with each other about times when sex had been forced on us. So that the sexual violence, you know, talking about that is a very important aspect of coming to stand in our full sexuality because feeling safe and getting to make our own choices and not having sex forced on us or insinuated on us is a really important part of both owning and enjoying our sexuality. As you say, pleasure. Yeah, I think that that. At, at that time, what was groundbreaking about that book um, and the Boston Women's Health Collective was this idea that we as women could and should have pleasure in our sexuality, in our sexual expression, which brings me to another part of your story, which is being a lesbian. And we're going to need to take a break because I want to get into this part of the story really in a heartfelt way, because we're talking again about bridging great divides. And I would imagine from your mother's perspective, you know, or your parents' perspective, being a lesbian was not what was done in that privileged white world. Totally true. And that's why I tried not <laughs> to let them know for a very long time. <laughs> Let's take a break. Mm -hmm. To learn more, please visit wendysanford-thesewallsbetweenus.com. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. This episode was recorded while on the road, and you know what that means. Imperfect sound, imperfect technology, but still that perfect, health-consciously prepared brain food. And we're back continuing the conversation about the mythology of otherness, building resilience, forgiveness, and connection. Let's get back to the conversation with Wendy Sanford. And Wendy, just before the break, we were talking about the emergence, your emergence from the the white bubble into yourself and coming home to yourself. And I want to talk a little bit about becoming a lesbian 
in your parents' world and what that was like? Well, the first I ever heard about gay people was my parents during cocktail hour would tell jokes about fairies, which I came to understand were men they had heard of who were interior decorators. (laughs) (laughs) So that was my level of information for a long, long time. And then when I became part of the women's movement, the women's health movement, and was working on our bodies ourselves, a group of women who were lesbians came to us and said, you know, you need to have a book about, you need to have a chapter about lesbians in this book. And um, none of us was lesbian. So we invited them to come meet with us. And I was incredibly nervous around them. I just have to tell you, I couldn't look any of them in the eye. And I think that I think I thought that they would see something in me that I didn't want to know about myself. They were just scary and fascinating to me. And they did a fabulous job and wrote a really groundbreaking chapter for the book, which they called in America, they call us dykes. And it was, it was about love affairs and it just was wonderful. The chapter changed a lot over the years to become more women's health oriented and stuff like that. But it was a fabulous chapter. So that could have been a sign to me that there was something else going on. But I was married for 10 years to a man and that ended unhappily on its own accord, nothing to do with with my maybe having feelings for women. But that started to occur to me as to a lot of young feminists, second wave feminists. It's like you start to value your women friends differently and you start to accept that there that some women have, you know, sexual attraction to women and or to both men and women or Now that we're getting more educated about gender, you don't even say both men and women anymore because there's such a a wide spectrum. But I did eventually fall in love with an old, old friend who I'm actually have been with for 42 years, Polly. And uh, we got married 20 years. We got married, married under our Quaker meeting uh, 20 years into our relationship. But it's been a life sustaining thing. And you're right. It took me out of the bubble. You know, back then, except in my feminist circles, you really didn't talk much about being a lesbian. You know, this was the 70s in my family, in my hometown. It turns out my second cousin and dear friend also became a lesbian, but she did a, she did a slightly different thing. She was, went through a motorcycle phase and all those things that back then <laughs> people associated with those lesbians. And so my mother didn't really want me seeing her much. Well, now we talk monthly as she and I, and we both have been married for years. And, you know, I'm sure there were a lot of other lesbians around, but we, it was pretty uh, closeted back then, but that did it, it was another step. You're so right. Outside that bubble. I mean, there certainly was a there was the white bubble adapted to include lesbians and becoming lesbian wouldn't necessarily have made me start to understand my whiteness and my white privilege. But it it did certainly play a role. I think you're right. Let's talk a little bit about a very important relationship in your life and how that began to shift your perspective even further? Oh, good. I'd love to. So when I was 12, my family went for its first summer vacation. They rented a house 
on a New England beach in the, the island of Nantucket. And my mother asked her friends, asked the people who were domestic workers for her friends, who they might recommend that she, so she could have help that summer. And a young woman, very young woman, a 15 year old young woman came all the way up from rural Virginia. She really was part of the great migration, which is something none of us were talking about at the time and came all the way up and came to that secluded beach that was really only for white people and did all the hard work in our family for that whole month so that we could have a vacation. And she was 15 and I was 12. And we had, we came from such different experiences. She'd been working every weekend since she was 11. She had gone to a one-room schoolhouse because that's all Virginia would provide for Black children at that time. And of course, at age 15, she'd graduated because they had nothing more to teach her. She's an incredibly smart person, but she was out of there because they had nothing left to teach her. And here I was still a girl and doing all the girl things. And she ended up coming back, married, her name was Mary White at the time. And she ended up coming back every summer because she did such a good job. My mother would beg her to do leave whatever she was doing, even to leave her children behind later on in her 20s, to come help my family have a good month by the ocean. And it was incredibly lonely for her. And there really weren't any other Black people around at all where in this secluded area. And it was incredibly lonely. And so we kind of became friendly. And I once later, when we were becoming closer and closer friends, I said, how do you think we ever became friends coming from such different worlds? And she said, well, Wendy, there was no one else out there to talk to. <laughs> so, so uh and um, that went on for many years and not until suddenly in our 40s, we started talking because we had more and more in common. Uh, we were both divorced. We were both single parents. She was rising in the Mercer County, New Jersey correction system as the first female officer in that system. I was an active feminist health activist, and we just started talking. And by then, I was pretty lonely out there, too, because as a lesbian and a, and a feminist, the bubble was less and less comfortable. And I'd also been learning from Black women health activists how limited my, my views and visions were. So we started talking, walking on the beach at night because the beach was not a comfortable place for her during the daytime. And we just started walking and talking and that continued for many years. And I, I think the book is really, it's a tribute to that friendship. And it's also really an, a, a real exploration of everything I had to learn to become a decent friend to Mary because there were so many assumptions I made coming out of that white bubble that weren't accurate and that were hurtful to her. And the book chronicles some of those in some of the ways, some of the reading I started to do to learn, learn what I needed to learn to be a less insulated white person and a more dependable friend to Mary. And where we still, we talk every week. We, oh, boy. It, I've, that turns, makes me so happy to yeah, hear that. And it turns, out, it turns out we're both MSNBC fans. So Rachel Maddow and others, we we just were both pretty progressive thinkers. 
And so we do a lot of ranting about the right wing. And we also talk (laughs) about our kids. And we're both really deeply spiritual people, although we're in different. She grew up in the Methodist church, the Black Methodist church in Virginia. And I became a Quaker, but we have, we just love each other very much. And so during COVID, we talked, well, for the first few weeks, the first few months, that first March, we talked every day because we just needed to help each other through this scary time. So let's, I want to just go back for a second about, you know, what you learned from Mary, in terms of the existence of racial injustice, that I have this vision of the two of you as young girls, young women walking on the beach at night because you could at night safely. And as your world opened up from hearing about her life and her stories, what that was like, where you really saw that the world wasn't completely the white bubble. What was that like for you? Uh, Well, there's one step before that that I want to mention, which is that, and this is kind of a policy I have, which is that white people who want to move out of the bubble, it's really important not to depend on the black people we know to teach us because they're busy with their own lives. So that what I learned, I learned a lot from, uh, from reading uh, that was my new devotional reading was reading the works of, of black women in particular. And I, I remember one book I read uh, called Coming of Age in Mississippi uh, by Ann Moody, which was she just really stepped blow by blow her growing up as a poor black girl whose parents were sharecroppers in Mississippi and the terror and the hunger and the, the ways her family managed to survive and be a family. And so I read that book and was very affected by it. And I, I gave it to Mary and I, and she read it in one night. And the next morning I said, what did you think? And she looked at me and she said, Wendy, that book was my life. And that is the moment when I knew that we had been friendly and we played cards and we did whatever things you do in the summertime when she had a little bit of free time, but I hadn't known her at all. And so that was the moment when I understood I had so much more learning to do, both from her, but also from reading. So I wasn't depending on her to spend her limited discretionary time teaching me. And what I also hear is that Mary did not, she was not complaining. You know, once she was asked by you, 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 you each read this book and you asked her about her experience of it and her saying, this is my life. But she was not letting you into that world and complaining about it readily. No, that's an interesting point. But the book is such a painful book. And we had both just read it. So we stood there in the same room looking at each other with my understanding differently how she grew up and what the challenges were and what the beauties were also. Yeah. You know, as you speak, I'm thinking about, you know, that living in that state of curiosity, you know, because mm-hmm. this planet is is covered with people of different different colors, beliefs, classes, et cetera, et cetera. Genders, yes. Genders, you know, that when you take a moment to go through a few thought experiments of putting yourself in the shoes of another, you know, I think that those, the lines or, you know, begin to melt, you know, or that is the hope you know, that we move towards understanding. 
that is that it certainly is the hope and also and and with understanding comes action to change some of the policies and laws and regulations that limit the opportunity of certain people to the benefit of others and i think the author tanahasi coates writes about that really beautifully in his book between the world and me yeah. I find your memoir fascinating. I, I think Thank the relationship you. between you and Mary is certainly eye-opening. You know, I can imagine, you know, being either of you, you know, and your experiences and your each of your worlds being opened by the other. And mm-hmm. the, I think that is what it takes, you know, to step across perceived line and understand, try to understand. Well, what's it like for you, you know? living right. in, your, and, in your body, in your world. Yes. And then to be t- responsible to that understanding is the next step. Yes. I like that. To be responsible to that understanding. Yeah. Wendy Sanford, thank you for joining me today. We've been speaking about your book, These Walls Between Us, a memoir of friendship across race and class. To learn more, please visit Wendy Sanford, hyphen these walls between us dot Com. Wendy, thanks for joining me today. Oh, thank you. What a pleasure talking. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guests, Dr. John Crowley and Wendy Sanford, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.